Good morning, church. My name is Brett. I am pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, especially those who are with us for the first time. Thank you for making us your church home for an hour today. Really appreciate it. It's Palm Sunday, and these things here, for those who have grown up in some kind of religious tradition, mean something. For those of you who have not, they mean nothing unless somebody explains them. So the reason we hand these out is because when Jesus walked into Jerusalem for the last week of his ministry life, there were people that were so excited about his presentation and coming that they laid down palm branches on the earth uh, upon which his donkey could travel. Um, The signification was, you are so worthy and unworthy of us that really not even your mount needs to touch the dirt of the earth. We want to elevate you to a different status. And so palm branches were laid down. And so we hand these out to remind us of the elevation of Christ. Turn with me over to the book of Mark. We're going to talk about Palm Sunday today. We're going to look at Mark chapter 11, verse 12, verses 12 through, excuse me, verse 9 through 12, and then verses 15 through 17. Mark chapter 11 verses 9 through 12, and then 15 through 17. The title of the message is Inspection Day. Inspection Day. It says at this moment, in verse 9, it says, Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. On the next day, verse 12, when he had left Bethany, and then we're jumping to verse 15, they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began driving out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not, verse 16, permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, verse 17, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Lord, help us as we study your word. Three things in this passage I'd like to emphasize. One, the people's supplication. Two, Jesus' evaluation. And then, then three, the idea of what it meant for him to bring remedy to a situation that folks didn't think needed that solution. Boy, it was a big time for Israel. Up to the time of John the Baptist, the Israelite people had not experienced a prophetic ministry of import since the time of Malachi. And that had been over 400 years We call it the silent period in Scripture. It's the longest time that we have where, for the most part, God says very little to the people of Israel. Between Malachi and Matthew, again, about 400 years, and John the Baptist appears. And in between his, his ministry starting, there was this cognizance of a birth that had occurred. And it was Christ's birth. And it was kind of a public birth, not necessarily intended to be so, but a lot was made of it 
Because these wise men came from the east, they had seen the star which is signified the Christ child being born, and they had made inquiry of all their books. And we call them wise men primarily because we don't know what else to call them. But they were really kind of uh, sorcerers, magicians, horoscope, horoscope readers, and those who would try to tell the signs of the times from the stars, as well as having some leadership and rulership in their lives. So we kind of put all that together in a recipe and call it wise. And we, we moniker it wise because they found out what most people weren't even looking for. So we ascribed to them some degree of virtue because they were looking. And they weren't even Israelites. Nobody in Israel was looking. They saw the star, but they didn't make anything of it. So these men, it took them about two years, we think, reason being, when Herod, the king of Israel at the time, tries to figure out the time when the star appeared, he goes to his leadership, his people who are counselors, and say, when did the star appear? And they said, about two years ago. And we know that to be the case because it says he thought this baby, this child, was a rival, and he went and told everybody who was a military official to go to Bethlehem and kill every child two years old and younger. So we know it took probably the wise men from the time they began the process of searching to where they found and then traveled approximately two years. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, because the star had disappeared, though Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the star had disappeared, and they realized from their readings, and they found <clears throat> what we believe was a passage in Numbers chapter 23, where Balaam, a prophet, says, a scepter will come forth from Judah, and a star will come forth in Zion. And so they began to see that a star was that which would announce this ruler. Well, when the star disappears, they go to the logical place where a ruler would be born in Israel, which was the capital city, Jerusalem. And they say, we've come to worship him who is the king, the newborn king. And everybody says, we don't know what you're talking about. Well, from that pronouncement from the wise men, everybody begins to circulate the idea that the Messiah has been born. The general rule was you didn't come into all of your ministry or business or your manhood, full manhood, in terms of influence in the community until you were 30. Thus, everybody's wondering, okay, this Messiah is supposed to be around, and then John the Baptist appears. And they went and asked him, what? Are you the one we should expect? Are you the Messiah? Why? Because John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus but about the right time when Jesus would mature to come to the place where he would begin his ministry. And so when John starts, everybody thinks, this must be him because he is so powerful. He's garnering the attention of the entire nation. People like him so much. They're coming out to the desert to listen to him. We got to work really hard with the air conditioning to get you in here. <laughs> they were going out to the desert to hear this guy preach. Wow, you're talking about a minister. That's how powerful he was, enough for everybody around to begin to ask, are you the Messiah? All because of 30 years, about 30 years had passed. And everybody was trying to figure out 
when is this one coming? And then Jesus shows up at John the Baptist's ministry and says, you gotta, you gotta do all the right stuff. There's no king that's pronounced without his prophet. And you're my prophet. And so he baptizes John, excuse me, John baptizes Jesus and a dove appears out of heaven. God says, this is my beloved son. In him I'm well pleased. Listen to him always a moment. And then John realizes who Jesus is. Although they had grown up together to some degree, he didn't really understand who he was fully. Uh, And so he realizes from this, oh, you are. You're the Lamb of God. You're the one who's coming to take away the sin of the world. You're the one who's the Messiah. Wow. And then he gives his staff to Jesus. So Philip and Andrew came from John. What a man. Biggest ministry around. And he gives it over to Christ. In fact, saying by definition of giving it over, he says, it's time for me to decrease that he might increase. And that's that's really not a a bad thing for us to to mantra on a regular basis. Lord, let me decrease that you might increase. And so everybody began to think Jesus might be the one. And here we come to the moment of the last week of his ministry life. He's done just about everything that people had hoped and more. The only thing the Messiah was supposed to do was to inherit the throne of his father, David. He was to be in the line of David. And the prophetic word in 2 Samuel was that he would sit on his throne, he would never be moved from it, and there would be no end to the increase of his government as it's found over in Isaiah. And so we find that this person, this Messiah, was supposed to rule well and never not rule. Once he got there, it was supposed to be rulership unparalleled and never stop. But Jesus was different. He wasn't just somebody who might be able to rule well. He was laying hands on folk and seeing blind eyes open. David never did that. He was raising the dead. David never did that. He was casting out demons. David never did that. And so they were looking at this Jesus as a possible ruler, and they were thinking, he's better than we hoped. He brings the miraculous to the throne. Can there be anybody who would ever stop him? He's got God on his side in terms of leadership and in power. He not only can command an army, he's got another army nobody sees. This army from heaven backs this dude up. Wow! Woohoo! It took about three years for people to figure all that out. But now he was coming into Jerusalem and everybody realized this is probably the moment. This is a time when he's going to confront Herod. Now, Herod's in another city, but he's at least going to take some authority there in Jerusalem. And, and, and then Pontius Pilate and, and Rome is going to be unseated. And, and, and then the religious leaders, who are really bad folks, but they act like good people, they're going to be up, uprooted, and he's going to take their job. It's going to be great. This is the moment, y'all. And if I can get close enough to him, I might get a job. <laughs> he just might... Give me, I, I ain't looking for much. I mean, I have security. That's all I need to be. Just give me a little, you know, little, little would-be gun on the side. Not to stand right there in front door. Make sure nobody gets to him. I, I, I can do that. Jesus comes in during the time of Passover. And the time of Passover was a big celebration in Jerusalem. Big. I mean big. Three times a year, the men of Israel were to appear before the Lord 
for the purpose of celebrating the feasts and remembering their history. The Feast of Passover, which represented the time the Israelites were delivered from the hands of the Egyptians by God's mighty right arm, and as a result of having a, a, a lamb that was slain and the blood of that lamb put over the, the lintels of their door, they would then have this curse that hit the Egyptians passed by them. And this curse was the, fir was the firstborn of the Egyptians dying. If the blood was on their doorposts, the, 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 the curse would pass over them. And so they called it the Passover. They were to celebrate their deliverance and freedom from the bondage of the world. Feast of Booths. That's when they were wandering in the wilderness and remembering God's provision that every day he gave them manna from heaven. And he provided for them quail that would come in about 5 o'clock in the afternoon and just land. They'd just go pick them up. That he would give them water from rocks. Things that the reason a, a rock is a rock is because there's not enough space for water. And yet God brought water from rocks. They were to remember what he had done for their ancestors in the wilderness and providing in miraculous ways. And so for an entire week, the Feast of Tabernacles, they had to live in booths, tents, and remember what their ancestors went through. And they'd hear stories about the provision. And then there was the Feast of Pentecost. Feast of Pentecost was the Feast of ingathering, celebrating the harvest and what God gave. The people of Israel were to come these three times during the year and stay an entire week and do nothing but worship and fellowship. That's it. Feast of Passover was probably the most significant one because it represented their deliverance. And everybody would come. We don't know how many people lived in Israel at the time, but probably somewhere in the nation, mm, four or five million folks, everybody was to descend at Jerusalem. They called it going up to Jerusalem, even they were going down, <clears throat> they were going down in, in direction. And Jesus had his home in Galilee, a city called Capernaum. And he would be about 90 miles north and they would travel down. And everybody had to come at the same time. And so there was this sense of caravanning. And the closer you got to Jerusalem, the bottleneck happened because everybody from all over the nation would come together for this one spot. And boy, they, they, they knew something about Jesus. And as people began to get on the bandwagon of trying to figure out how they could really support him, other people would hear and say, what, what, what's going on here? Oh, this is the Messiah. This is the moment. This is the moment. And the crowds would build and everybody realized this week he's going to do something he's never done. He's laid the groundwork. He's built an on-ramp. Man, we're all going to be better because he's going to be great. And then they would shout out, Hosanna! Hosanna! And that means save now. Save now. Now, without the Aramaic version of save now, which is Hosanna, you all, at some point, have cried out like that to God. You have driven your life in the ditch. You've made enough bad decisions. Or you've had people that didn't like you and had it in for you, whereby you cried out and said something like this, help, I need help now. I need you to deliver me from this immediately. You've cried out for that. All of us have. And if you haven't yet, you just haven't lived long enough. <laughs> Stuff will happen to you whereby you need God because there's no way you can get out of this. 
And you cry out like these people, saved out. And what were they asking to be saved from? Herod, who was their leader, who wasn't a Jew. He was an Edomite and had no regard for the Jewish people. Rome, who had their puppet, Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem, who constantly had their foot on the Israelites' necks. Horrible. Save them from their own leadership. Their religious leaders that didn't have their best interest in mind and would give them commands that they themselves were not even, not even willing to lift a finger to help them fulfill, condemning them for things that they weren't able to do themselves. Hypo hypocrisy was the order of the day. Save us now from this, oh God. Save us. We need help. And we think you are God's answer for us. We all have our own idea about what we would like God to do for us, don't we? We have expectations. And when we come to church for the first time in a long time, generally those expectations are the driving force. I'm going to church this week. Why? Oh, I'm just going to church. We don't want to tell anybody everything that's going on, but we know and we know God knows and we want him to fix whatever's wrong and we think that maybe if we get in this holy building, he'll act in a holy manner and deliver me from that which is afflicting me right now. Oh, we go so far as to make deals with God as best we can, don't we? Lord, if you will, I want you to know, I'm going to go to small group this week. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm going to go to small group. Yes, I am. And Wednesday night, I heard they got a Wednesday night service at 7.15. I'm going to head there too. And, 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 and you might even pr prayer meeting on Friday night, I heard. They talked to God and, and you, you, you seem to, I, 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 whatever, Lord, if you do this, I'll do this. And somehow we have in our brain that our bargaining with God is going to work. But isn't one of the presuppositions of bargain, bargaining that which says the other party has to have something that he wants of value from you? <laughs> when we say, Lord, if you do this, I'll read my Bible. So how's that going to help me? Well, wait, 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 help me. How, what's that going to do for me? Why? Would, it's not like God is in heaven thinking, if I could just get people to read my Bible. Oh, it's so terrible. They won't read my Bible. He's not fretting over it. He's got people who read it and still don't do it. I mean, why in the world would he bend to your demands? What's in it for him? Your negotiations mean nothing to him. You have no chips he wants. You have no bargaining power. Our job is just to do. Whatever he says do, we say yes, sir. Now the reason you come to church might be varied. But the ultimate one should be, I want to honor you. I want to be with your people. I want to hear your word. And afterwards, when I walk out of there, I want to do better. And be better than when I came in. That's why I'm going today, God. Help me with that. Oh, that's the right kind of prayer. But most of the time, it's just get me out of my, my bad situation. This is what the people were saying. Hosanna, it's really hard on us. Save us now. And then, if that wasn't enough, they cried out, save 
to the uttermost. Save, O Lord, to the highest. Hosanna in the highest. It wasn't just enough to save me now. Save at the level in which I don't even know that's so great that I benefit in ways that I didn't expect. Now, you're bordering on a pretty good prayer there. Though your intent may not be the result. You might have different ideas about what it means to save to the uttermost. Your idea might be, well, I didn't ask you about what my career ultimate, the the moment of the apex would be. That that really, but if you want to touch that too and bring that to pass, that'd be good. And by the way, I'm looking for a good man. (laughs) I'm just saying. If you, can, if you can touch that area too. Or, or you know, I've got, a, I've got a 16-year-old that just ain't right. I really need a lot of help there. I don't know. So many things we could bring. And they're, they're legitimate. Oh, these cries from the Israelites, they weren't illegitimate. They really needed help. But they may not have been the priority. And God, the Lord has different ideas about how, how to bring to pass that which would help you most. But we want to prescribe that which we believe is most important to him and have him follow our plan. Please co-sign on the stuff I believe is important. I need your signature in order to make it, make it happen. Save to the uttermost. And I'm convinced that the uttermost in terms of the most correct prayer is save me from me. That's about as deep as you need to get. You pray that prayer every day, you're going to be good. Most people are thinking, save me from the devil. He's afflicting me constantly, tempting my mind and my heart, trying to take me the wrong way. Let me help you. The devil is a formidable foe. He's serious. Nothing to play with. But he is one being in one place at one time. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent, meaning all-knowing or all-powerful. He's not even close to being like God in terms of his power. He has different powers than we do, but he's a created being. And I'm, I'm convinced that he's probably right now someplace off training the next great antichrist, which probably isn't you. <laughs> Somebody say amen. (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) I got concerned for a minute. Who am I pastoring? (laughs) Which ought to bring you some degree of comfort because he's not bothering you. And I'm convinced of this one thing. That he doesn't think he needs to because you'll mess yourself up all by yourself. No help needed. We're all that, that twisted on the inside. He doesn't need to give a whole lot of attention to you. So if you were to pray this prayer, which I believe is the most correct idea, save to the uttermost, Lord, save me from me. That wouldn't be a bad one. That wouldn't be a bad one. You're your worst enemy. Your desires, your heart, 
I saw a poster in a person's room one day. It says, follow your heart. I went to him and said, why you want to follow that thing? <laughs> why you want to do How's that worked out for you? How's your heart led you? You needed to come to church because you followed your heart. You don't want to. Your, the heart, Jeremiah says, is sick. Deceitfully wicked. And unknowledgeable in all things. That's the heart. Why do you want to follow that? The heart doesn't know all things well. It doesn't give you good direction. The heart is contaminated with wrong passions and desires. You don't want to, you want to follow the Lord and let your heart follow the Lord. That's what you want. So when these people say, Hosanna to the highest, save me from me is what they should have meant. But what they were asking is, save me from all of this stuff sociologically so we as a people can finally be the head and not the tail. Save me so I can have a good job. Save me so my marriage can work. Save me so I can enter into the inheritance that the Romans have taken from me. Save me like that in ways that I haven't even asked. But I mean when I say, save to the uttermost, Hosanna in the highest. They do not mean, save me from me. When that ought to be our request. Because we are our own worst enemy. And so Jesus listens and he does nothing. He's not saying, okay. No affirmation to the request, no response. He's just taking it all in primarily because he knows they don't know what to ask. They don't know what to ask. Their expectations are all wrong. And, and please hear me. Your dreams and your visions, they're precious. I'm glad that you are believing for something beyond whatever you've got now. It shows aspirations and it gives you a sense of hope every day to get up and do more than just be obligated to your employment. I'm happy about it, but please know that whatever you are dreaming, if it is outside of what God has for you, is either too small or all wrong. It fits in one of those two categories. And ultimately, the answer when you pray about it is going to be no. And it's not because God doesn't love you or want the best for you. He wants the best. It's just your idea of best is worst. It's always less than. He has something bigger and better for you. But you can't see it because you are so focused on you. And that's why you need saving from you. He needs to rewire your soul and your heart so that you can be in line with what he desires. And this is when the prayer that Jesus says would work, would work. If you ask anything in my name, just ask me in my name. I will do it for you in John 14. I'll do it. And what that means is if you ask anything under the authority, which my name represents, which is my will, I'll do it for you. It doesn't mean you can just ask anything you want and slap the name of Jesus on and things will come to pass. No, 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 no. And so when you ask him to fix this, your desires who you are on the inside, then you begin to pray prayers that sound like a whole life what he wants you to pray. And then why wouldn't he do what he already decided he wanted to do now that you're talking about what you want him to do? He will do it. But our expectations are all wrong. And these people had wrong expectations. And they would find out about their expectations being dashed in just a couple of days. First would come the evaluation period. Jesus walks in the city, 
And he goes straight to the temple. And he surveys. It says he looks around. And he finds it not as it should be. Some things are out of place. Some things are taking the place of other things that are really important. Now others use this passage for purposes that really aren't most accurate. It says that Jesus saw that there were money changers and people selling wares. And he kicked them out, overturned their tables. I mean, Jesus got a little, he got pushy. This is not the picture that most people paint of Jesus. I mean, most artists, you know, the sheep around his neck. Or him at the table, the last supper with the twelve, dispensing service and food. This, this, isn't, this isn't the kind, gentle Jesus that most people want to see. He was a little bit pushy. Overturning people's counters with the money in it and it falling all over the place. Stopping people who were coming in with their wares to sell from coming in. I mean, I don't know what that looks like. But it was one of these, him there, them looking at him. They're trying to go this way. He goes, then they try, he goes, force uncomfortable and the disciples are sitting there looking at him thinking you know they they were really happy with you yesterday and today earlier but but you're kind of not making any friends right now hmm and this is your strategy to be elected using our way of government to show their concern this is your this is your strategy to be appointed I don't know. I know you are smart and God and all that stuff. But I, I don't know. He's surveying. And he's looking at the entire environment. And, and the great thing about God is that he's calculating. When Jesus comes to our lives, he's never inaccurate in his assessment because he's looked very well. He knows exactly what needs to be adjusted in our lives. He knows the things that need to be moved and he knows the things that need to be placed. And many people think that this whole passage deals with whether a church can sell stuff in church. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It has everything to do with selling stuff in church that's taking the place of something that's really important. These people were actually setting up shop where folks were supposed to be praying and Jesus was angry. Why? Because he said, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've made it something other. Now, they were trying to perform a service, meaning the people who had the wares. Because in order to serve God well in worship, you needed to have the implements to do it. So animal sacrifice was necessary. Sometimes vegetable sacrifice, things from the fruit, fruit of the ground. Sometimes money. And you had to have the right kind of currency in order to do it. So you couldn't come with the Roman, uh, uh, I don't know what it was called back then, forgive me, but you had to either translate it into shekels or drachma, which were the Hebrew coins. And so you had money changers. You had people that weren't herdsmen. They didn't have a cow in order to sacrifice for their particular issue. They didn't have a sheep. They didn't have a lamb. They weren't shepherds. And so they could buy it there in the t at the temple. And you had people that weren't, weren't agrarian. They weren't farmers. And so they could buy stuff there and sacrifice now, the problem was twofold. One, the folks who were selling the wares were taking the place of prayer, which should not be. They're, they should have sold their stuff outside. 
Secondly, how much is a hot dog at FedEx Field? Yeah, you drive up the price when nobody has any place else to go. So they were robbing folks, robbing folks on, for, for church duty. Jesus was hot. Now, you may not say, you, you, may, you may say, I'm not doing any of that, Pastor. I'm not trying to figure out how to make a dollar on somebody when they're trying to serve God. I'm not trying to do that. But you'd be surprised the number of things that are taking the place of the most important things in your life. Things that you have put in front of Jesus. Things you have placed before the priorities that God has for you. You who are really excited about this young lady. She's pretty. She's got a job. She's ambitious. But she doesn't know nothing about Jesus. And Lord, I really want to marry her, but, but she doesn't know about you. So I'm just wanting, wanting, wanting to know if you just kind of <laughs> just kind of wink at this one for a minute. Oh, you don't, want to give, you don't want to give me your relational life? You want, you want, to, keep, you want to keep that between you and me. Therefore, it's taking the place of me. Lord, listen, I want you to know I, <clears throat> I believe that worship is important and, and I, I really love you. And <clears throat> but there's this occupational opportunity that seems to be really good. And um, it's going to take me away from all the things that I know best. And I just I, I want to submit to you that it's, it's a good idea for me to make more money than it is to be more spiritual. That's not to say that the Lord can't call you someplace in employment. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the priorities need to be that if Jesus is Lord of all, he needs to be Lord of all in your life and even of your occupation. So when opportunities come that are financially rewarding, you need to submit them to him rather than just taking the opportunity. Lord, what are you, what are you saying? Are you in this? Why? Number one, he's deserving of it. Number two, he knows whether that business is going to fold in three months. You don't. And the last thing you want to do is move and the CEO be, be now in, incarcerated for embezzlement. And the company goes under and now you're stuck. I'm just saying God knows. He knows. And you don't want to put anything in place of the things that are most important. Your will in front of his. There are so many things that he is surveying. And I don't know, I, I don't have time to talk about all the issues that you are running through right now in your brain to try to figure out, I wonder if that fits that. Uh, maybe I need to address that. <laughs> Pastor didn't say that one, so I'm cool. I just did. I just did, I just did, I just did. Jesus is surveying. He's looking. And you can fool me. You can fool my whole pastoral staff and anybody who's spiritual in your life, but you can't fool God. Can't. He sees. He sees. And generally speaking, the thing that you're withholding from him in terms of priority, that's the thing he's got his finger on and wants the most. Because it's vying for your attention with him 
And you are in danger of practicing idolatry because you are worshiping at another altar. You are giving attention to something other than him that is requiring your obedience. Are you listening to me? He's trying to clean house. Make priorities where they ought to be, place things where they should be, and make sure that other stuff doesn't compete. And I'm convinced that Jesus was serious about this enough <clears throat> that this, this kind of is the order of the day for him in terms of, of how he addresses things that are wrong in, in temples individually and corporately churches that are structured for worship. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And it's not just a place, we just went through a series on prayer, it's not just a place where you do all the talking to him, it's a place where you commune with him, that you align your heart with him and he with yours. And you begin to, to, to grow and mature in your understanding of what relationship looks like and integrity in walking. That's what it means for you to become a temple, a house of prayer. And I'm convinced that he kind of made this a standard operating procedure because he did this once before. At the beginning of his ministry, after he was baptized by John the Baptist, he went around, got some disciples, went in the temple, and did the same thing he's about to do now, then. And when you get right with God in the beginning... It's usually a clean house moment, isn't it? I mean, when you really get right, it, and, and for the most part, you're pretty happy about it. Even though it's painful and hard, you realize you put yourself in this position, and you came in order to get most right. And so if that has to go, okay, we'll, we'll go, good, whatever, God, I'm going to please you. I don't know what all this means, but I know I need to make it happy. If that needs to go, make it happen. And so you get really zealous about getting right. But as you get in the kingdom and you stay here a little bit longer and you, you begin to learn culture and uh, all of a sudden some things that you would not have tolerated in the beginning, now you begin to tolerate. Because you realize, I ain't going to hell for that. I ain't going to hell for that. I'll let that slide. And you forget to weed your garden on a regular basis. Now, I've started my garden. It's April and that's when I get out there with my shovel. And yesterday I turned over a lot of dirt. And I'm starting to get excited about my garden. I've always complained about it, and that without repentance, because I don't love any of it. <laughs> None of it do I like. I do it because I love my wife, and she likes a garden. She likes the fruit of the garden. So I go out there and work. It's an, it's an exercise in, in affection and fidelity. <laughs> and so I'm turning over dirt yesterday, and I realized this. My son is now married, Garrison. He's our campus minister at George Mason University, and he's living in my basement. They're saving his money to get their own place. And his bride is, is somebody who wants a garden, too. <laughs> so finally, after about 12 years, I got help. I'm happy. I'm happy about my garden, more happy than I've ever been. But I realize this every year. If I just plant my garden, and so everything will be in the ground by the end of next week. It takes about 12 weeks for most things to mature. If I just plant my garden, come back in 12 weeks, I ain't going to have much. I can't bookend cleaning out my garden, which is turning over soil and, and getting rid of the weeds. I can't just bookend it with a hope of harvesting 12 weeks later. This is what happened with the people of Israel. No maintenance in between. Jesus cleansed the temple in the beginning, and they should have gotten a clue. Hey, let's keep it clean. Let's keep it clean. Let's not let anything build up anymore. He made a point. That's supposed to be a place of prayer. We're not going to put anything back there again. They didn't listen. Three and a half years later, he comes back and has to do the same thing. 
If I wait 12 weeks, I will have very little harvest because so many weeds would have grown that they would have competed with the nutrients necessary to make the stuff I wanted to grow grow. And now these tomatoes that would have been this big are now cherry tomatoes. (laughs) The watermelon that should have been this big are now like apples because they didn't have enough nutrients in order to grow. And the things that I wanted to have happen never happened because other things took their place. You have to be vigilant. Once he cleans house, keep it clean. Whatever expectation you have on God about what you want him to do for you, I please ask you to right-size it, to reduce it, need be eliminated so that he can do what he wants to do in you because whatever he wants to do in you and with you is much better and greater than you ever could have thought. Your dreams without God are either too small or all wrong. Your expectations on what you want him to do for you never meet his. Our goal is to line up with what he desires. Let the cleansing process happen. Make room for him in our lives and allow his will to be ours so that we can get to our ultimate purpose and destination quicker and not have so many obstacles in the way for which we need to repent. Can you say amen? Amen. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. Thank you for being who you are and doing what you do. You are so enduring and so kind to us.